Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So if you've ever read the works of Stephen King, you know that there's a reoccurring character who embodies everything that is wicked and evil in the world, and his name is Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg is the functional antichrist uh, who comes back time and time again within the works of Stephen King, and he's a rather unimpressive figure, actually. That's what makes him so dastardly. He's sort of a rugged man who's modestly intelligent, a biker type wearing uh, blue jeans and uh, cowboy boots, but he is roaming the planet, uh, seeking new acolytes, new disciples, and he always looks for those who are particularly destroyed and devastated by the difficulties and cruelties of life. And he finds these defeated and often raw and vengeful people and promises them a grand recovery and a lot of power, a lot of power. And he offers them his hand, this gesture with these accompanying words. And this is found in almost all of the novels. He says to them, and now shake the hand that shook the world. Shake the hand that shook the world. In other words, how about you engage in this very small symbolic gesture in order to align yourself with an immense power? That is the power of evil. And the tragedy of the human story is that we have shaken the hand that has shook the world. I mean, that we have made a dozen compromises this week that we ought not to have made. And we have uh, bowed to dark power, whether we uh, fully knew what we were doing or not. And uh, the reality is that in the uh, grand and depressing human story, there's been only one exception uh, to that rule. One man did not shake the hand that shook the world. And we uh, commemorate him every Sunday and hope to be refashioned in his image and likeness. And this, uh, this man... Uh, paid for uh, that refusal, for refusing to shake the hand that shook the world, and it cost him dearly. And Jesus, in John chapter 12, is approaching his imminent demise. He knows it. Uh, The disciples seem to be blissfully unaware of it, even though Jesus had by then told them several times that he was about to die. Uh, And you see, Jesus Christ was uh, highly intuitive as a person, and he knew that the crows were circling. I mean, he knew that his time was imminent and his humiliation was drawing closer. But he also knew a secret that nobody else did, namely that his death would not just be a, a martyrific act or some sort of grisly thing that we occasionally remember, in order to demonstrate the, uh, the wickedness of humanity and what we do to good people. No, instead, he saw his forthcoming demise as a cosmically significant act. He had a perspective that nobody else did. He knew that it would affect something. Namely, it would affect two things, according to this passage. It would affect an expulsion as well as an attraction. Expulsion and attraction. So I'm going to be talking about uh, just a few verses from John chapter 12, which is a passage that could be preached in about 18 different ways. I'm not going to do that. You don't have the time. I don't have the energy. So um, verses one, uh, verses 30. 31 to 33, verses 31 to 33, and I encourage you to read it along with me, please, right now, and then we're going to really explore it, explore the solar system of this passage, and hopefully come away with a grander vision and a more inspired vision 
of the effect of Christ's cross. So this is verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, we'll begin with the expulsive element of the cross. This is verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I think it's really fascinating that Jesus employs the language of authority, lofty authority, when he's describing Satan. I mean, if, if I were going to do battle with the darkest spiritual opponent of everything holy, sacred, and good, I wouldn't give him any accolades. But what Jesus is doing here is suggesting, more than suggesting, claiming that this entity has a great deal of authority. Notice the ruler of this world, according to Jesus Christ, is not Caesar, is not a man, is not a woman, is not a country, is not an economic model. It's not even the royal family, you know, not even Prince Harry with all the news, you know, not even him. No, the pale, invisible hand that has the world by the veritable throat is a the personalized, de, uh, destructive and deconstructive drive that the Bible calls Satan or the accuser. Um, <clears throat> Satan is the one who Jesus cites as the ruler of this world. And I think that's uh, quite a claim, but, but Satan and Jesus are on the same page when it comes to this understanding. Satan himself confesses his lofty authority. You may remember that very early on in Jesus' ministry, before he went fully public, he <clears throat> becomes a companion to Christ in the middle of the wilderness when Jesus is especially hungry and, and beleaguered. Uh, he comes to him and he starts to tease He starts to tempt, and he, in fact, makes this grand gesture uh, in uh, in the early chapters of Luke. He says to Jesus, um, offering him this bartering chip, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, that is the kingdoms of this world, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So he's saying, or at least boasting in, now he hasn't given the full story because he's sort of imagined himself to be the sole sovereign, but he, he's trying to suggest that he has a great deal of authority over the kingdoms of the world and he can give that authority to people, right? Now, <clears throat> Paul seems to agree with this satanic assessment of authority. In 2 Corinthians 4, he gives Satan a rather lofty title, the God of this world. He writes, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And he gives him a regal title in Ephesians 2. We preached about it, I believe, last week. The prince of the power of the air. That's what he calls the devil. The prince of the power of the air. So a lot of lofty titles given to this diabolical force. Ruler, prince, even a god. Uh, lofty, consequential titles bestowed upon God's antithesis. So the Bible perceives sort of an unusual agreement between Satan, Christ, and Paul that the power of Satan is tremendous, widespread, and effective. And more than that, this ruler, <clears throat> this ruler has comprehensive power. Comprehensive power, not over a city, not over a religion, not over a particular tribe, but over the world. The ruler of this world is about to be cast out. So everything from the Arctic Circle to Antarctica is influenced, infected, affected by this diabolical cosmic reality. And, um, and, and so I think that it's important for us to just take a moment, a little pause, and recognize that we might not often enough recognize the power of evil, the power of objective evil. 
so when uh, Peter Jackson was asked to give uh, an explanation of the darker elements of his Lord of the Rings films, he said that he was comfortable with almost all of it, with the exception of objective evil. He didn't like the notion that evil could be separated from bad psychology. He thought that that was a barbarous and uh, superstitious understanding of the world, that evil is just located in the brains of people, but there's no sort of external force or drive or compulsion that is in any way infecting from without. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous thing to do, to reduce the crises of the world and our lives to bad parenting, broken psychology, and a lack of education. Because the Bible acknowledges, with great consistency, these organs of evil, the ones I just mentioned, bad parenting, bad psychology, and bad education, all of it. But it adds intermingled into the body of organs a transcendent virus that compounds the crisis in each one of those organs. And that transcendent virus is what we call evil, or the ruler of this world, or the principalities and powers. Um, I, I was uh, given this illustration uh, by uh, Sarah Mitchell, so she's getting full credit for it. But I, I was looking for an illustration that, that sort of summarized this all-consuming, subtle yet not subtle dominance of evil. And she referred me to the book Good Omens, which was made into a TV show with David Tennant. Some of you have seen it. Um, and I want to uh, uh, quote to you from a, a part of the book in which a particular demon is expressing his grandest triumph, which was not... Uh, the death of a monarch, which was not a plague, which was not armies clashing in the night, but which was the London Expressway, <laughs> that that is hell's greatest gift to the world, the most satanic triumph of the world, the London Expressway. And this is what he, he says. Many phenomena, wars, plagues, sudden audits, <laughs> have been seen as evidence for the hidden hand of Satan in the affairs of men. But when true students of demonology get together, the London Expressway is agreed to be among the top contenders of satanic triumph. Some assume that this wretched road is bad simply because of the carnage and irritation it engenders every day. But the thousands of motorists who daily fume their way around its serpentine lengths grind out an endless fume of low-grade evil to pollute the metaphysical atmosphere for miles around. You can hear hundreds of thousands of smoggy souls every day becoming slowly furious, arteries clanging shut all across the city. And then they take out their pains upon their secretaries or traffic wardens or whomever in all kinds of vindictive ways for the rest of the day. The long effects are incalculable. Thousands and thousands of souls get, once a day, a faint patina of grime, and we as demons hardly had to lift a finger. You understand? So it's, it's the compounding of everyday evils with a, with a satanic grime, with an accentuation, with a surcharge, if you will. Uh, and so we as Christians have a very comprehensive and robust understanding of the great difficulty of our times and of every time. And it has to do with the ruler of this world who has us by um, his pale hand, has us by the throat. Now, the, the biblical view that has some sweetness in it, though, is that the ruler of this world, as lofty and dangerous and comprehensively effective as he is, lacks total supremacy. 
Now, there was an ancient religion known as Zoroastrianism. I think there are like eight followers left, but they are there. Um, Zoroastrianism uh, had um, open eyes regarding evil. They did not, unlike many other religions, sequester evil to sort of a, an occasional baser instinct of human beings or maybe a demonic interference from time to time. No, Zoroastrians said, oh, no, the universe is divided completely. It's halfsies. It's half really good, and it's half really terrible. There's a god who's in charge of the good part and another god that's in charge of the bad part, but they both have equal authority. Now, the genius behind that perspective is that it actually noted and highlighted the overwhelmingly negative nature of reality. It didn't sugarcoat it or hide it away. But because of the need for a, a balance, it actually uh, it, it does not permit the light to conquer or to rule or to have any superiority over the ruler of this world. And the Bible has a far more sophisticated perspective because it says, no, Satan is a despot, but he's a limited despot. Uh, we see this in the book of Job, for example. When Satan wants to torment Job, God restrains him from certain torments. And later, we see this in the gospel according to Luke at the Last Supper. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus gives Peter a little inside baseball, and he says, Satan, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you so that while Peter becomes a betrayer, he does not ultimately lose all of his faith, right? And he becomes a strengthener for his brethren later on. Uh, but Jesus here is limiting through prayer the power of the devil. And, and we see uh, Jesus constantly evidencing authority over the dark world. He does this in his exorcisms, and people are often shocked by his authority even over the things that they can't see that are causing uh, dangerous tidal waves in the world. We see this in the Great Commission where Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and not by Satan, by the way, right? All authority has been achieved through his death and resurrection, and now he holds the keys, and Satan does not. And we also see the ultimate act of authority <clears throat> In an experience of total loss, this is the thing that the satanic powers couldn't predict, uh, that they would lose by being effective, that satanic power would lose by doing what it does. And what does it do? Satanic power likes to accuse and likes to demolish. And so that's what it does to Christ until he dies. And that's why in Colossians chapter 2, Paul can write about something that occurs at the cross. He writes, at that place, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In who? In the crucified Christ. You see, Jesus had an, a, a unique understanding of what his death could effectualize, that, that, that his death would lead to a grand exorcism. In fact, the grand exorcism that the ruler of this world, in fact, now the ruler of this world, like right at this moment, the ruler of this world will be cast out. The person, the entity, the reality, uh, the, um, the cosmic darkness that has us by the throat, that very thing will be cast out, but not by an army and not by a potion and not by an incantation, but by a... Uh, an act that looked entirely powerless, that looked like it was in complete acquiescence with the satanic design, that this great uh, miracle man, this man who could raise the dead, would not, uh, would not give himself a pass, 
would not create a, a miraculous escape for himself, but in fact would lay his life down as a ransom for many. And he understood that his cross would be a grand exorcism, or if I can put it rather crassly, the castration of malevolence. That's what he understood it to be, taking away the potency forever of demonic power. How was the cross, this garish act, uh, a, a functional expulsion of evil? How did it triumph over the ruler of this world? How did it drive a stake through the heart of the satanic enterprise? Well, it turns satanic weapons against the Satan himself. What does Satan do in the Bible? He is the father of accusation and demolition. Accusation of you before the eyes of truth. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan means. He exists to point out all the ways in which you are subhuman, degenerate, disgusting, and deserving of damnation. And after that, he kills you, right? He's the author of mortality, of demolition. He says that I will, <clears throat> I will cause you to cease to be. So you're going to be judged as a, as a sinner, condemned in a sin, as a sinner, and therefore your full humanity annihilated. And what happens to Jesus? He becomes the one who is accused on the great tree for all of us. He became the sin, sodden, sin-bearing Christ. He became the one who was pummeled into death. And yet, by becoming that accused man, he also became a lamb. And by becoming the demolished man, he also became the rescuer of all of those who are similarly demolished. And so uh, through the cross, through the cross, Jesus overturns through the satanic system, the very satanic system that killed him. Uh, And this uh, is beautifully, of course, illustrated and the line, the witch in the wardrobe, in which the, uh, in which the risen Aslan looks back upon his own sacrificial death and talks about the deeper magic and said, what the white witch never understood, never understood, was that if an innocent victim gives his neck in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself will work backwards. And so Jesus becomes this powerful exorcist on the cross, expelling the ruler of this world from his grimy authority and taking his rightful place on the splintered throne of grace. And so he becomes the, uh, the great act of expulsion. But he also then says something about attraction, attraction. So he's going to cast something out and draw something close. And this is attraction in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, when Jesus speaks about being lifted up, he is really making two different references. One is future, one is past. The future one has to do with his imminent death. He said this to show what kind of death he would die. But he's also referencing here, in a very faint way, an obscure Old Testament story. He makes a clearer reference to it earlier in his ministry in John chapter 3, the very famous passage about Nicodemus at night and for God so loved the world and all of that. But some people don't keep reading because it says uh, in that very same passage, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what is he referencing? Well, some of you might know, but some of you might not. It's a very bizarre story. 
in the Old Testament in Numbers 21, and some of you have acted like you read the book of Numbers. Um, you know, it's, it's not always easy to get through because it's filled with, well, numbers. But it's also interspliced with some interesting narratives. Not that the numbers aren't interesting. I'm, I have to backpedal. Anyway, so there's this fascinating story in Numbers 21 about Israel acting out of their uh, sort of God animus. I mean, they just can't help themselves, just like we very often can't. And so they're acting uh, terribly under a covenantal arrangement that curses disobedience. And so God, uh, under the law covenant, is, uh, is punishing them in the wilderness by sending fiery serpents to bite and kill them. So it's a bad day. And uh, it's really fascinating that God chose serpents as the entity of curse that, that, or the implementer of cursing. Why? Because uh, serpents have a certain connotation within Israelite theology. And let's just say it's not very good. It goes back to, of course, Genesis 3, where Satan is disguised as, the, as a serpent, as the symbol of evil. And by the way, the serpent is the first thing God curses in the curse sanctions of Genesis chapter 3. The curse falls upon the certain, and now the, cur- now the, the curse thing becomes the means by which God is presently cursing the disobedient Israelites. And what's even more interesting is with this curse of serpent biting, God provides a cure. And the cure is really weird. It's not medicine, and it's not a miraculous vanishing of all the serpents. He's not like you know, sending St. Patrick down to the wilderness to cleanse it from all the snakes like St. Patrick didn't do in Ireland. You know, things like that. Just, there were no snakes in Ireland. Um, instead, he tells Moses to make a statue, which is weird in Israelite religion because you're not supposed to do that. So make a statue. More than that, make a statue, a bronze statue of a snake. In other words, something that looks shimmery and fiery, just like the fiery serpents serpents I sent to you. And then put it on a pole. So lift it up. So take a statue, which you're normally not supposed to build, of the devil, no, but of the serpent, right? Of Of the implementer of the curse. And then lift it up. And if people stare at the hideous thing, if they stare at the thing that is killing them and their children, they'll be healed. All they have to do is look. Look at the thing that is lifted up. Look at the bronze serpent. Stare at the evil thing and you'll be delivered from evil. Well, this bizarre image became a a fresco uh, uh, painted upon the imagination of Jesus Christ. Uh, He just so deeply understands this image and its connection to his imminent future. In other words, he, he thinks to himself, I have to be like a snake. I have to be the new snake. I have to be the new snake. I'm going to, um, I'm going to take into myself the very methods of evil, accusation and demolition, so that evil will be undone by its own methods. I have to look hideous. I have to look horrible. I have to be destroyed by the evil powers of this world. And in doing so, and in doing so, I will attract people that need to be redeemed. I'll be so ugly that I'll attract the world. I mean, it's a fascinating understanding of of the goal of one's life. But Paul put it in these words, and you know them, many of you do, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, as this new serpent is lifted up, the old serpent is finally chased away from the garden. As this new serpent is lifted up, he attracts all of those whom the old serpent once attracted away from God. Now they're attracted back because he is the one who had the courage, the temerity to become just like you and just like me yet without sin who shared our lot and our pain and our horror shows and our difficulties and our box canyons and our impossibilities. And he lived under that until it killed him. But in doing so, in doing so, he trapped 
the Randall flags of this world. He trapped the satanic power in its own game and triumphed over it and became for us the means of our very recovery. This is why Paul, again, can write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Because when we remember the cross, see the cross, think about the cross, we as Christians don't see it as only ugly. We see the ugliness, but we also see gorgeousness, beauty, relief, forgiveness, clemency, expulsion, attraction, all of it. That's why we call it Good Friday. We're not idiots. We know that it was horrific and bloody and garish and horrible, and we don't even want to look at it. But at the same time, I, our eyes are drawn there because that's where our love gave his life away for us, even us. Uh, and so it's the means of our recovery. It attracts people back to God. It builds the bridge. It's the repairer of the breach. It is the, re the repair, the cross. It has covered the canyon. And now we have the bridge. Uh, and so this very thing, which would normally repel us, a ghastly execution, becomes our rallying cry. Uh, that's why when Liza was walking the processional cross down today, that's just a reminder that we huddle in this church uh, not around vague ideas and not around uh, a country or a language or a, or a personality. No, we're here because of the cross. We're here because somebody loved you enough to give his life away. You know, that's, that's why we sing it here. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's why we're here. Yeah. So as Jesus stares into this imminent sky filled with circling black crows, he sees the imminent effect of his cross. This is the thing. This is the thing which will lead to the great expulsion and the great attraction. So now let me wrap this up with uh, two words, uh, one related to each point. Regarding expulsion, you know, the goal of the Christian journey is to be, if I can put it this way, de-demonized. That's God's plan for you. De-demonization. To lose the satanic influence in our lives. That's why the beginning of our Christian life is marked functionally by an exorcism of sorts. You may remember in our baptismal liturgy, we have what we call a baptismal covenant. It has three uh, promises that are negative in their orientation and three that are positive. But the first question the baptismal candidate is asked is this, and it has to do with the devil. And it is, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of this world that rebel against God? And if you want to be baptized, you have to answer that one correctly. <laughs> Namely, I renounce them. Now, what is that question and what is that answer? Two things. One, it's an acknowledgement that those things are very real. This isn't this isn't just sort of metaphors. We're not living in the land of similes here. Like, that there is something to that. And whatever that is, even if it's not fully understood by us, we know that we wish in Christ Jesus to stand against it. So it's an acknowledgement of it. And also, with the words of renunciation, it's a rejection of it. It's a rejection of the powers of, of evil. So that when the hand of Randall Flagg is extended to you, saying, shake the hand that shook the world, you can say with full Christian credibility to hell with you, to hell with you, which will be answered, by the way, quite literally, uh, because the hand that shakes the world won't be shaking the world for very much longer. That hand is destined for the flames. So as I look into your eyeballs today, 
and through that camera to the other eyeballs that are watching, right, what I see, I do not see before me a group of timid individuals. I see revolutionaries who have been conscripted into the armies of the light. That's what your baptismal identity means. You have been brought to Christ as a renouncer of everything wicked and evil. And that the evil residue that remains in us, and the scriptures as well as the articles of religion are quite clear that the nature of concupiscence, the, the, the nature of a broken heart and a bent will and uh, a beleaguered mind are, are still with you as a baptized person, but that you as a Christian now begin to recognize it. You begin to see over time the satanic influences that have poisoned your system. And you're now clinging to a Christ who will not only save you on that last day, but even now works within you to cure you so that you can have a better life, so that you don't have to be divided, a divided self. Uh, and so that's something about expulsion. Now let me say something about attraction. You know, uh, some of the Puritans labeled uh, the effect of Christian conversion in this way. They called it, and I love this, the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, they thought that the cure for satanic influence, and we can think as well, the cure for our satanic influence, uh, the influence that we see in our town, in our state, in our country, in our world, and, and even within the, our own cavernous hearts, the cure for that is not screaming at the darkness. Uh, just for what it's worth, there are very few times in life that call for an outright raging out at the darkness. Very rarely does that achieve anything. In fact, the darkness rather likes it when we start screaming. Uh, but, but, the thing that cures us, the thing that cures us in the long haul is a new affection, something new to love. And so, God doesn't just give us something to reject. Even in our baptismal pledges, he gives you something to love, namely someone to love, namely someone who has more authority than the old boss. Because the new boss ain't like the old boss. The new boss is better. And the new boss has wide open arms that were lifted up and rammed through with spikes. And who says, in that place of beleagueredness and lifted upness, I'll have you. And if no one else ever will, I will. And I will forever. That is the kind of new affection that we need if we're ever to be free from the residue of sin and Satan. Because we were friends healed by a hand, a hand outstretched to us that was punctured for you and for the world. And there's still a lot of life in that hand, enough to unmake the powers of hell forever. So shake the hand that lifts the world. Amen. They could not.